Hi guys, and welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast, a podcast for people who love to learn about the British Army, its enemies and their battles. As regular listeners will know, the purpose of this podcast and YouTube channel is to remember forgotten historical events and to rescue these brave men from the dustbin of history. If you like what you hear, please do comment and subscribe as it will really help others to find the show. In today's episode, I'm once more joined by author and historian Cam Simpson to learn all about the three Victoria Cross winners of the siege and storming of Morosi's Mountain, a gruelling campaign fought in Southern Africa in 1879. Who were these brave men? How did they win their awards and what happened to them afterwards? To learn more about Morosi's rebellion and the broader campaign, you may want to go back and listen to the last episode we did, where Cam breaks it down for us in great detail. Cam is currently writing a book about the conflict, and you can search for his work over on Amazon. And so, without further ado, let's dive in. In our last interview, we talked all about the, the Morosi's Rebellion, the battle for Morosi's Mountain. I understand that conflict saw three VCs. Now, we did touch on it in the last episode, but can you give us a brief overview of who those guys were, what they won it for, and what happened to them in later life? Yep, yeah, no problem. So... In, in that first assault, you know, we talked about um, Private Peter Brown and Sergeant Robert Scott, the CMR, and they before de- performed deeds that were later um, resulted in them being awarded the, the Victoria Cross. That was on 4th of April. Um, there's a couple other guys in, in the wings with that one. And then, of course, um, the last one for the mountain was Surgeon Edmund Hartley, which is um, deeds performed on the, the 6th of June. But... I think, interesting enough, out of these guys, there's always somebody in the winds that, that could have or should have got one. Um, so just quickly, um, the first one um, was First Class Private Peter Brown. I'd mentioned in that first recording that they never used the rank of trooper and he's written up in the citation as trooper, but that's not how the, the CMR operated. So he, he was um, Swedish. I'm not even sure with Peter Brown's his real name, to be honest with you. Trying to pin some genealogy down on him is quite difficult. It's probably um, Peter Bruin or Peter Bruin. Um, he was a ship's carpenter. He joined the Front Air Mounted Police in 1865. Um, and interesting enough, he was present in the VC action at Drybosch in the um, in the Ninth Frontier on 27th of December 1877, I believe it was when Major H.G. Moore, an Imperial officer that was then commanding the Front Air of Police, um, was awarded the Victoria Cross. So he was present that day. Um, interesting little tidbit. So Brown, as we know, he, he goes out under fire without a weapon, um, gives water to Sergeant John Edwards, who was a, a long-standing friend of his. Um, they've been in the CMR for years. And then there was a youngster, but he still served six years in the CMR, and it was um, Johan Patsky. Um, and he goes out, gives them water at the same time. He's shot in the leg and shot in the arm, and he ends up losing the, the use of his arm. Now, Brown survives that day. He has a pretty deplorable um, couple of months down in that field hospital at the Morosi's Mound, and Patsky dies that night. Edwards despite being shot a total of three times, survives and stays on with the CMR and is discharged in the 1890s. But immediately after, this is the part that I find interesting, is digging out all this detail about 
paper trail of how they get they get to VC. Colonel Jarvis, the commandant, um, the, the Cape Colonial Forces back in King Williamstown, when he first heard of it, he said, okay, we'll give him £10. Well done. But he felt that the men of the artillery troop, had they been in the British Army, they would have got the VC. And this is just not Scott. These are the guys that went with him. Remember that chap Oakley I talked about, the curator? So these were the guys who were trying to throw an artillery shell like it was a grenade. Yeah, exactly. And bearing in mind this is Jarvis detached, you know, 200-odd miles back um, back in King Williamstown. That was his initial thought based on what he was reading. So there's a reset on all this. Hang on a minute. You've got all this wrong. And so everything's rewritten. They said, no, we've, we've missed a trick here. Private Peter Brown and Sergeant Scott of the artillery troop um, need to be mentioned um, as well. So we'll just focus on Brown for the time being and then get into Scott, although they, their um, recommendations are intertwined a little bit. So the message is received, okay, got it. At the same time, it's realised that um, Brown's arm, you know, is no, no use to him anymore. It's just basically hanging there. He can't soldier any longer. So they're organising him to be discharged. The problem is he doesn't qualify for 15 years. He's done 14 years and five days service. So some bean counter says, oh, you're not entitled to a pension. And everybody basically says, get real. Based on what this has guy done, you know, not only does he deserve the Victoria Cross and he should get the Victoria Cross, he needs a full pension. So he gets his pension. He's discharged on the 31st of August, 1879. And contrary to belief, though, it's written up that he accompanies Sagana, sorry, not Sagana Wolsey, um, Evelyn Wood up in Zululand in 1880 when they're out there trying to recover, look for the body of Captain Barton, but it's actually, it's not him. I mean, he's debilitated down in the Cape at that time, but it's actually Trooper Brown, Robert Brown of the Frontier Light Horse, who got the DCM. That inherent mistake comes from um, Wood's book, but it, oh. it's, you know, it's, it's definitely not him. It's written up that it's Brown VC, but it, it's not. Um, uh, from midshipman to uh, field marshal in that book, he he mis he misnames him, does he? Yeah, yeah, ex exactly. Um, so he's recommended for the Victoria Cross, um, and then I think it was thirty first of December. Freya finally pushes it up is involved with it now and realises that yeah, something needs to be done. This is quite unique, what this guy did. And um, then it's 13th of April, 1880, it's gazetted. And he he picks it up. Now, Brown, um, he, he dies in Cape Town in September 1894. He's at a pauper's grave. And, and looking at his um, the records in the Cape Archives dealing with his estate, all he's got is a pile of debt that was, what I could read is, was basically around outstanding bills for medicine and um, alcohol mm. was, and, and some food. And he had his medals within his possession. His medals were bought by a, um, a volunteer captain and handed over to the, um, I bought for something like 25 shillings or something like that at an auction and handed over to the CMR so they could never be auctioned off again. 
Right. Um, but yeah, they quite where do you know? Is there, are they on display anywhere? It's I think they're a museum out on the Eastern Cape somewhere from memory. Okay. Well, that'd be nice to, to see. And just to clarify, did he actually get his pension in the end? Then he did. He did yeah, get his pension. He did, but he but he had a rough life. Um, yeah, it's quite sad, and you know he's got a pauper's grave here. Like I know I was at a Scott's grave the other day. It's a shame that he hasn't got one himself, but um, that's what happened. And then you know, m- moving on to Scott, you know Scott. Um, was the son of a fleet surgeon, you know, Robert Charles Scott. Um, he was well-educated. You know, that was Robert Charles Scott's his dad's name. And so he was well-educated. And then um, he comes out and he joins the Front Around Manor Police in 1876. And he's promoted pretty quickly and he falls into the artillery troop. And he's recommended about the time of the Ninth Frontier War for a commission. Um you know, like many of them, you know, your name goes into the bag and when the one comes up, you, you'd be recommended and then have to sit an exam as well. Um, so we talked about how Scott had volunteered to use 7-pounder shells as, as a hand grenade effectively. And to elaborate a little bit more, because we have to bring another character in here, because when you, you're reading through all the Scott recommendations, there's one person missing out of this whole episode, um, and it's a chap by the name of um, Corporal Henry Morley. And so in, in this half a dozen guys that carry the shells and the fuses up to the mountain, up to that first offensive wall, and when they get up there, there's like about 48, roughly 50 um, men standing at the wall at that time. And um, Scott gets up there, he talks to this Captain Grant, who we mentioned early on is real, though despite um, Colonel Southey being up there, Grant's the man of the moment and he's up there commanding um, with great vigour. And they find a place where they can get um, Scott and one other up onto a ledge and then they've just got to lob this seven-pound shell across. And this is all in theory, mind you. Um, And so you're talking seven pounds of this, this shell that needs to be thrown. So he asks, you know, can somebody go with him? And when they're realising the best person to go for is a chap by the name of Henry Morley, who we mentioned earlier, and he's described by Scott himself as being an ex-man of war man, implying he's ex-Royal Navy. Um, So, and he was quite small. So onto this ledge, you know, for space-wise, you know, this is going to be applicable. So they take a handful of these, these shells up there. Now, the first one they throw and it comes straight back and it doesn't go off. And so they're obviously readjusting the fuse in some way. Now, they talk about not mechanical fuse but a lit fuse because they're talking about matches. Um, so you've got Scott holding the fuse, sorry, holding the shell and Morley with the matches and this thing goes off. And basically, you know, they you know that's it. The whole mission's off for them. It's complete failure. But um, you know, you've got Scott losing his hand, right hands completely blown off. He's got fifteen wounds on his legs. Um, his right legs, you know, basically completely ripped ripped apart, um, right down to the bone. And there's eight minor wounds. And Morley, 
He's got a damaged right arm. His left breast is injured and he's got substantial hearing damage. Now, they, they managed to get the other men in the detachment, bring Morley and Scott off, and they're all mentioned in dispatches, all of them, that go up there for getting up there, carrying the shells, and then also getting the guys off the mountain. And I mentioned earlier, there's like Colonel Jarvis believed that, you know, they're the guys that should have got a VC. But that was just a snap at what he was reading because they were heavily written up in an isolated dispatch, um, not a collective one. There's a lot of isolated reports coming through about who should be getting what. Um, but Scott, he he lays down here in that sod wall. Um, somebody dies. A little homemade hospital at the bottom of the mountain. Yep, yep. And there, there was a couple of officers actually went down and they, they looked looked after him, they, apart from doing their duties, would go down and see how he was. And they, they said it was the most amazing thing how he was hanging in there. Um, but, he, but he was. He, he was somehow managing to, to keep himself, you know, clutching to life and getting over these wounds and infection, but he does. So when they finally get him out um, and he's getting back to some kind of semblance of recovery, he's commissioned on the 18th of August, 1879, um, and he doesn't join the artillery troop until September. But in the meantime, his name had gone up for a recommendation at the same time as Brown. And as we know, Brown's successful, but the hanging point was his pension that they wanted to get it all, all packaged up to look after the guy. Um, now, Scott's goes up, but when Brown's is approved, well, basically the message comes back out of horse guards that the Queen had said that um, had he survived, sorry, had he um, not been commissioned, she would have gladly have given him the Distinguished Conduct Medal. Now, there's no DCMs mentioned for anybody in the whole campaign. Um, it's the only time I've ever mentioned it, seen it mentioned. There was no recommended for a DCM. It's only out of um, horse guards that that's mentioned. But they also said the comment was used um, that his deeds didn't meet the statutes of a Victoria Cross. Is what they um, is what they they mentioned, and so they felt that he's got his commission, get on with life, you know. Um, so then there's a, a retake on this whole thing. His father, the fleet surgeon, gets involved and writes to Jarvis and says, listen, we need to get him back here to, to the UK. He needs to be fitted for what they called a mechanical arm so yeah. he can ride his horse. And Jarvis agreed with that. He said, yeah, this guy's going to perform his duties as an officer um, with one arm. He's going to need that. And also they said, can you please forward on the recommendation of Lieutenant Best um, to Captain Giles, and Giles was the guy that commanded the CMR troop as a whole throughout the whole of the Eastern Cape, and he was a new appointment. He was up at the mound himself on and off for a while, um, but he basically said, can you get that out because that basically says that he wasn't ordered to carry this out. He volunteered for it, and that seemed to be what they're hanging on, that he volunteered, and then there's a flurry of um, altering of letters and statements saying that, no, he volunteered. 
as they all did. So ultimately, the VC um, is awarded for him and he gets it. But then he, um, so he was away in, I think, 12th of February to about early August 1880 on leave. Um, and getting himself fitted out with this mechanical arm, as they, they called it. Um, and then he, he returns and he, he resigns almost. I think he's resigned by September 1880. And then the Gazette, the VC was gazetted actually on the, the 1st of October, sorry. So he, he finds about his VC after he resigned from the CMR. Um, now, before I get on to back to Cobble Morley, you know, he... He goes into the civil service in the Cape. He ends up working for De Beers. In the first Anglo-Ball War, he, um, he raises the um, Scots, what they call Scots Railway Guards, which was basically partly paid for by the Cape government, partly by De Beers. And that was to, after the siege, it was to protect all the diamonds coming out of Kimberley. So that was their job. And then at the same time, he commanded two regiments, um, with the same purpose, it was the Cape Railway Guards. Then he, he commands the Kimberley Commando in the First World War. His brother was a brigadier, I believe, with a DSO. Um, and, yeah, he soldiers on. He dies um, out on the Cape. And I went out to see his grave the other day, um, possibly anticipating a clean-up, but it was in pretty good nick, actually, but better than the last time that I've, I've seen it. And just quickly, you say, you say uh, commanded the Kimberley Commando during the First World War. Did they deploy um, to any any of the um, uh, theatres of operations or, or not? Yeah, they would have been a part of the, um, the rebellion and then also they would have gone to southwest Africa. Whether he went himself, I'm not too sure. And they right. possibly could have been doing on operations out on the border, that commando. But, yeah, they, they, you know, they... Track, yeah, they were received campaign medals. But yeah. I, I know he, he went over to exceptionally busy military life then, all the way through from 18 well, uh, before 1879, sort of 1877, Ninth yeah. Frontier War. And he was over there after the Southwest campaign, commanding one of the garrison regiments there that were raised, um, that went out there. But, um, yeah, so getting back to Corporal Morley, right now. For years, I've been coming across this guy's name everywhere. You, you know, you're, you're trawling, not looking for anything on him, but you'll see a, the odd letter and it'd be this Corporal Morley applying for a pension and the reference that he was recommended for a Victoria Cross. Now, at the time, I can I found nothing that says Morley, like Scott, recommended for Victoria Cross. Um, apart from later on with a couple of testimonials and they said, yeah, yeah, he was, but it just hasn't survived. But he, so he sold his own with the CMR despite debility and then he's medically discharged. He can't hold down a job and then his applications for a pension and he mentions this, I was with Scott when I received my injuries and surely I'm due something. Then he, he joins the, um, <coughs> he goes into the Bekuan Land Border Police and Carrington even lobbies for him at one stage. Um, Colonel Carrington, you know, from Nine Frontier War fame and and rolling on to General Carrington. And then he's 
up in um, Matabele land as well. Um, his soldiers up there and he's even in the Boer War. Um, he ends up in the Rand Rifles also at, at one stage. But it was in 1891 that it, his VC um, well, inquiry about why didn't he get one hits the War Office. And they essentially say, well, listen, we know nothing about a Corporal Morley. Who's Corporal Morley? And by the way, Scott's dead, you know. And then they want to put a lid on it like that way, you know. And fair enough, they probably don't have anything on him. And it's not, as I said, I never found anything on Morley. But there's a file there in the National Archives that reveals this, and that marries up, dovetails in perfectly with what's in the Cape Archives. Um, so... Scott then appears and says, Scott, well, I'm not, not dead. I'm living in Kimberley. I'm working for the Bears. And, yes, Morley came up with me. I picked him because he was a man of war man. He volunteered to come up. He was the only man with him. And they did it as a team. He shared the risks. He got blown up with Scott, and he said he should, have got, he should be getting the Victoria Cross. Even down in the Cape, I forget who it was at the time, but one of the Commandant Generals was on to this matter and he said, well, why isn't he getting one? But he never did. Right. So, you know, quite sad for, for old Morley that soldiered on for many years and a lot more research we can do on that chap. Um, but then Grant, remember I mentioned in the first episode about Captain Grant latching on to Griffiths saying, well, now, who will assault the mountain and earn the Victoria Cross? Yeah. Like a forlorn, forlorn hope sort of proposition. So Grant was definitely the man of the moment as far as leadership goes for that first assault. He was everywhere. Probably, probably for everyone been. who didn't, uh, didn't catch the first episode, can you just remind us uh, who Grant was just very briefly? Yeah, yeah so Grant was a Cape Mounted Rifle Troop Commander, former Imperial Officer, Bags of experience on the frontier. He led the, the storming party when the actual commander didn't appear to command it. Um, he followed orders through despite the fact that the, the storming force had been reduced from, you know, 160 down to 50. And um, he, he led them on and he, he was exposed to fire the whole day um, up there. And But he separately wrote, as well as recommending many, many people for what they call um, reward or distinctions was, was the terminology used. But he also said, I have done, I did everything in my ability to win that distinction that day. And I pretty much believe I should be getting it. Now, so that's him lobbying for this. No one else, Griffith never wrote it, but however, what followed was a flurry of paperwork saying, well, he was everywhere. He was the man. No one was denying that. And so the government politely wrote back and said, listen, you've been promoted the brevet major in recognition of what you did that day. We know that you are the man that held all that together and your bravery is beyond question. You know, it's not in doubt. But however, we feel that you shouldn't be the one that raised this and say, like, it's not going to happen. And he accepts it. Um, but it's just an interesting 
little dimension. And then the um, he ends up commanding the Cape Mounted Rifles, actually, as does his son, um, goes on to command. In actual fact, his son as a boy serves in the uh, in the um, gun war the following year. Um, then the, the last one, um, I know we're strapped for time a little bit, um, and there's nothing surprising about this one or ambiguous, is um, this is Surgeon Major um, Edmund Hartley, who's 32 years of age. Um, interestingly enough, he'd been a surgeon up in Maseru, um, in 1874 as a civil servant. Yeah, so he obviously knew the terrain. And he, he sort of first um, arrives in the military arena in the in the Ninth Frontier War, where he's a surgeon attached for the front around Mount of Police. Um, and then he's promoted a surgeon major. And essentially he becomes a principal medical officer um, in the, the sphere of operations in Basutu land. Um, arguably, you could say, you know, he was, was a part, he should have been doing more to in, improve, but I think with the resources that he had available with him, and it was only after I mentioned that the Prime Minister and Colonel Jarvis did that visit, they realised that they'd really let them down. They hadn't done enough, so um, he, he did what he could. But during that second assault, in um, in June, there were casualties laying all over that open strip of land, and there was one chap, um, an Irishman, but Corporal Alec Jones, who was a number number one troop guy of the CMR. Like what had happened with um, Sergeant Edwards and Patsky and Brown going out, um, Jones is in a similar situation, and, and mind you, this is very close to the wall as well. We're talking you know, 20 feet away, you, you know, so the, the fire is um, is very, very heavy. It's holding people down from racing out and getting these guys. Um, so there was a Corporal William Langrish, um, I think he was a Londoner from, from memory. He went out in a similar manner to what Brown did to look after for Jones. And um, whilst he's there, Jones is shot twice more. Hartley then appears, and he'd set up like a triage in that Commandant's Cave, which was that that cave off to the side of the, the first wall that the um, the first assaulters had used, or the storming party had used to take cover during the night until first first light when they made their their assault. So he managed to carry um, Jones out, and at that time Langrish returned to the firing line and. And stayed up there all day. But also with Hartley, where there was a Corporal Edward um, Murphy of the CMR, who was an acting hospital sergeant. Why he was an acting hospital sergeant? Because he was a, a described as being a 29-year-old um, Irish surgeon. Okay, so he's one of these guys that drifted into the CMR. Why he did it is suppose his business. We don't really know. Um, but he's also out there. So when you look at Langrish as being the first man on the ground, um, he's not recommended for the Victoria Cross, but Hartley was because Hartley was essentially, he was out and about and exposed himself to fire all day. So that's why Hartley was singled out for, for what he had done. Um, Langrish was mentioned in dispatches. Um, sadly, the Corporal Murphy, he was singled out by Hartley himself 
and, and said that, you know, what he did that day was just amazing. He was everywhere. And tragically, he was killed in the gun war in December 1880. So um, that's, that's Corporal um, Murphy, that is, not, not Hartley. And as Hartley himself, he stays with the colonial forces, um, the CMR. Then later on, he's um, in the Langberg campaign up in Bekuan land in 96, 97. He's wounded up there, um, serves during the, the Second Anglo-Boer War as well, and even scrapes in a bit of home service in the First World War back in, in England. And he dies in 1919. Wow. And uh, do you know where his medals are now? I'm not too sure of Think they're probably in a private collection. Right. Gosh. So, so three incredibly brave men. Um, so we there was quite a few people who potentially also deserved the VC. So it seems like those actions were pretty pretty hot and desperate. You know, for for those VCs to be won under those circumstances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were, Chris. It's, yeah, I mean, you, you, even you read the citations don't do them any justice, to be honest, when you're reading all the supporting documentation and, and others as well beyond them. You know, I can mention that, you know, Alan Wilson of the Shangani, I mean, he, he received a monetary reward, as did also in the CMR there was um, a Sergeant Crew. The Sergeant Crew commanded the South African Brigade in East Africa, and I believe he was knighted. Later on, he was also a politician, but there, there was a whole gaggle of them. When you look through the list of them, it's a bit of a who's who, but you know, they're all, all cited for their bravery. But it said it's amazing how distinguished conduct medals weren't, mm. weren't widely used. I think it was only up in the Zulu War you see the first South African colonials being awarded them. So, there you have it, guys a fascinating look at the three men who won the Victoria Cross at Morosi's Mountain. Thanks to Cam for another great episode. If you liked it, then please write a review and subscribe so that we can continue to spread the word and share these amazing stories with a new generation. You can also subscribe to my mailing list over at redcoathistory.com where you'll get a free download of my book on the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879 when you do so. Take care, guys, and we'll be back with more in two weeks or so.